0: Zoom video chat has become an indispensable part of our lives. In a crowded market of video conferencing apps, Zoom managed to build a product that performs better than the competition, scaling with high quality to hundreds of meeting participants and millions of concurrent users. Zoom's rapid growth in user adoption came from its focus on user experience and video call quality. This focus on product quality came at some cost to security. As our entire digital world has moved on to Zoom, the engineering community has been scrutinizing Zoom more closely and discovered several places where the security practices of Zoom are lacking. Patrick Wardle is an engineer with a strong understanding of Apple products. He recently wrote about several vulnerabilities he discovered on Zoom, and he joins the show to talk about the security of large client-side Mac applications, as well as the specific vulnerabilities of Zoom. Before we start, I want to mention Find Collabs, the hackathon product that I've been building. Find Collabs is free for schools and nonprofits. And if you're looking to run a hackathon for your product or your company, you can check it out as well at findcollabs.com. Patrick Wardle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Stoked to
1: be on, talking nerdy with you about, I guess, breaking Zoom. <laughs>
0: Indeed. Most of the episodes that we do on this show are about building web services that you access through the browser. Developers are using cloud APIs and open source software. And this episode is going to do some coverage of a heavy client side application on Mac, on a proprietary operating system. So, in many ways, this is going to diverge from a lot of the shows that I do. On Mac, zoom interfaces with the closed apis of the apple ecosystem how does building on top of a closed ecosystem like mac differ from building on an open source ecosystem like linux
1: yeah that's an excellent question jeff and i think you know kind of as you mentioned we're going to be focusing more on a native client and i think some of the issues that we'll see and we'll talk about are a result of that design decision. So I think you, you alluded, you know, as developers, perhaps interface with proprietary APIs. A lot of the bugs or flaws that I found were related to the utilization of insecure APIs, perhaps not understanding the security implications of interfacing with those functions, those interfaces. And that may be because, again, they're proprietary closed source and perhaps not as well documented as, as they could be. So I think you know there's definitely some risk from a security point of view when you're developing native clients if you don't fully understand the APIs. And also if the, you know, as a developer, perhaps you're also not reading the documentation as close as you, you could be. Because to give Apple credit, they do provide some warnings against using, or rather not using, not recommending a variety of these application programming interfaces.
0: And In- The vulnerabilities that we're going to talk about, from what I can tell, they sidestep some of the norms, some of the best practices that Apple puts in place to maintain a secure application ecosystem. But the reason that Zoom did that is because, well, some people might say that Apple has an unfair advantage with their own platform. Like they pre-install FaceTime and maybe it's only fair that Zoom uses some of these APIs in ways that maybe they're a little fast and loose with security, but they actually give the user a faster install experience. They maybe give the user a, you know, experience with fewer security pop-ups. Is there anything wrong with that?
1: That's an excellent question, and I think the answer to that is, as a user, what's more important? Usability or security? And I think that's exactly the path Zoom took, where they focused on a very seamless experience, you know, less button clicks, less authentication prompts, et cetera, et cetera. That made for a very user-friendly product, which became incredibly popular, but unfortunately, that was often at the cost of security. And I'm glad we're kind of mentioning the Apple component here because as Apple locks down macOS more and more, a lot of times they're almost putting third-party developers at a disadvantage because now to, for example, if you're creating a security tool, you know, the user has to just jump through all these hoops and open these various dialogues and manually approve certain applications, and it's just honestly a wreck, you know, because a lot of times users will skip things and then the tool doesn't work and then the Users will blame the application developers, where in reality it's you know, there's some responsibility, I would argue, that Apple has kind of pushed some rather draconian security constrictions. And you know, I don't know what the answer is because again, it's always a balance between usability and security. From a purely security point of view, everything Apple is doing is generally great, recommended, but that does impact the user experience. So then you see third-party. Developers or companies, for example, Zoom, kind of trying to skirt some of these problematic or less than ideal user experiences, which make the product more user friendly, but then may introduce security risks or issues.
0: So one early vulnerability in Zoom that was discovered back in July allowed the Mac Zoom client to enable the user's camera without permission. How was the Zoom client forcing a user's webcam to turn on in this vulnerability that was discovered back in July?
1: Yeah, my understanding was if the user had Zoom installed, there was kind of this like Zoom web server that would get installed in the background, uh, listening for requests. Um, And I believe it was designed or the idea was for it to only talk to the application. Uh, The security researcher found that a malicious website could send a request to that web service that was running. And I believe what happened would be that web service would then proxy the request to the Zoom application or Zoom plugin that was installed, which had been pre-authorized by the user to access the webcam. The issue was it should not have been allowed to accept unauthorized remote requests to turn on the webcam. So I think that's an example of Zoom designing a product that's very user-friendly, but not putting security and privacy at the forefront or not really designing those, baking those in from from the ground up. Because obviously malicious websites should not be able to talk to, you know, a local web service that's running in the background that allows you to arbitrarily turn on the webcam and and spy on the user, basically proxying off the installed Zoom client.
0: What's a better version of that implementation? So in this vulnerability, Zoom had installed a web server on the user's computer. And the problem was that that web server was just, more accessible or what was wrong with that? What was the bad practice here?
1: Yeah, my understanding is this component that was, you know, listening for connections. Again, I believe it was designed to just listen or proxy perhaps local requests between the application or maybe from the browser to the client. Clearly, though, they did not understand the attack scenario or fully lock it down, authenticate perhaps who was making the request. You know, it was really Again, my understanding it was designed to only be used between the various Zoom components, so there should have been some, you know, authentication of who's trying to talk to it, right, and not let a random website kind of make this request. It was kind of interesting because once this came out, you know, Zoom recommended people update. I believe they removed the web server component because there's better IPC mechanisms that you can utilize. But I think there was a flaw in the uninstaller where that actually web service would still hang around even if you uninstall the Zoom client. So Apple actually pushed out an update via their malware removal tool, something called MRT, with a signature to detect and remove that web service component. Apple basically made the decision that that put enough Mac users at risk that they were going to use their essentially AV like Daemon, and just remove that. So again, that brings an interesting point going back to the proprietary nature of macOS. It's like, yeah, someone in Cupertino can arbitrarily remove software on your system. Uh, you know, That's an interesting thing to consider.
0: And as an example for how the Apple ecosystem works, can you talk more about that malware removal tool, this piece of software that sits in macOS?
1: Yeah, so there's actually two pieces of... AV-like tools or utilities that run and are baked. AV
0: meaning antivirus. Yes,
1: antivirus that are built in or baked into macOS that Apple really doesn't like to talk about because in a way it's acknowledging that, you know, Macs get viruses. Of course, all security researchers know this to be true, but, you know, the Apple marketing department doesn't really like to highlight the fact. So the first one is the one we just mentioned. It's called MRT or the Malware Removal Tool. It's a daemon that runs in the background. And occasionally, Apple will push out updates. It's kind of interesting because the updates, these are new signatures to detect new malware or adware, or perhaps (laughs) vulnerable Zoom clients, that Apple has deemed necessary to be removed. Right? That's the R and MRT. And the signatures are actually compiled into the daemon. So when Apple wants to update the signature database, they actually have to push out an entirely new compiled daemon. So maybe not the most extensible design. It runs in the background, though, automatically, and if it finds any files or processes that match its signatures, it will kill the process and remove them. So we see that it's being used to remove backdoors, adware, or in some cases, legitimate third-party software that Apple has deemed to be a risk or put users at risk. The other piece of antivirus-like technology on macOS is called XProtect. XProtect is more similar to a traditional antivirus kind of on-demand scanner it has a separate signature database that apple updates every few weeks and what it does is when the user downloads a file from the internet and double clicks it the system will intercept that request and scan that file to see if it matches any of expertex signatures if it does the user will be shown a pop-up saying hey you know this file contains malware and apple will block that so that's good because You know, we still have, unfortunately, a rather large number of Mac users who indiscriminately download random applications or pirated or filed or files or applications that may contain malware. And then when they go to click them, they're basically infecting themselves. So Apple has designed some mechanisms to kind of jump in front of the user, scan those files first to make sure that they're not about to infect themselves with known malware.
0: And when Apple deployed this malware or, or it used this malware removal tool to take out the this web server component. And I realized well, this wasn't your security research. We'll get to your security research in a moment. But in this instance of using the malware removal tool, did Apple break the functionality of Zoom?
1: That was definitely a risk. But my understanding is there were some, I would imagine, some extra checks to see that The rest of Zoom was either uninstalled or a newer version that did not have that dependency was running on the user system. I think Apple, who do take security and privacy very important, generally put user experience first. So I can't imagine they would have pushed out an update that would have broke existing Zoom clients. And I didn't hear any discussion or users complaining about that. So I would have to guess, have to assume that Apple did that in a way that wouldn't break existing Zoom functionality. Because yes, even though that web server component exposed a remotely exploitable vulnerability, I think it would have been more problematic for Apple to indiscriminately break a large number of Zoom clients, especially because this update was pushed out with no user interaction or no user acceptance or confirmation, which, again, I think is a very interesting takeaway from all of that.
0: And in this context, How does Apple know what to change in Zoom? How does Apple know what Zoom component to uninstall? I I assume Zoom is a proprietary binary. How does Apple figure out what to alter? Yeah, that's
1: an excellent question. And also, I think dovetails with, you know, how does Apple ultimately make that decision, even if they, once they figure out that component, I think their understanding was largely gleaned from the security report, the research that the external security researcher published. I would like to imagine Zoom also talked to Apple or vice versa, Apple reached out to Zoom, but Apple does have a very talented security team that likely could replicate what the external researcher report. And then, you know, understand that, A, when Zoom uninstalls itself, it was leaving behind this web server component, you know, and, and again, it was running as a separate process. so. Or when Zoom had updated itself, I think the dependency on that service was was no longer there. So I would imagine that what Apple did is internally ran through all these scenarios first before pushing this out. You know, Apple has a pretty good track record not breaking things when they push out updates. I mean, there have been some missteps, but overall they do a, a pretty good job. And I think that's, again, because they prioritize, you know, not breaking anything above Security and privacy, which I think is which is a good thing, especially in this scenario. So I would imagine that they, you know, ran through the various scenarios. Okay, old version of Zoom is uninstalled, and there's web service is still running. How can we safely remove this? Or perhaps a new version of Zoom is installed. Can we detect that and then know that we can delete that? And perhaps if they detected an old version was running and still had that dependency on that local web service component, they wouldn't perhaps maybe remove in that specific instance. So you know, I think it's just, they probably did a lot of QA testing to make sure that this rather controversial move, in some sense, arbitrarily removing software from user systems around the globe, wasn't at least going to break anything.
0: Another issue that has been widely discussed is the aggressive Zoom Mac OS installer. And you've written about this. So the, the Zoom Mac OS installer performs its install job without the user clicking install, or at least it used to. And this was another interesting example of Zoom sidestepping the norms that Apple wants on its client developer ecosystem. You know, I kind of hate the installation experience on a Mac. Like, there's a lot of things to double click. I know it's a lot better than the installation experience I had when I was like, you know, installing software from CDs in 1995. (laughs) But it's still like a lot of clicks compared to just like going to a website and that website, like loading the software that I want to use. So why is this a problem? I mean, Zoom sidestepping the typical Mac OS installation process. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting
1: discussion. Because, you know, I don't say that was out of taking out of context per se. But Zoom, I think, did get a little extra flack for that that maybe was slightly misplaced. So what happened was you have an installer package. It's a a PKG. It's kind of how packages are generally distributed on macOS. Normally what happens is you double-click that PKG and it opens in Apple's installer.app. There's always then a prompt basically saying, do you want to allow this process to run? I forget the exact verbiage. If the user clicks yes, there are some pre-install scripts that get run if the package contains those scripts. then there is a request for the installation to continue. What Zoom basically did is just packaged all their install logic in the pre-install scripts. So there is still going to be a prompt that the user has to click, but it sidesteps or avoids the second pop-up and you know that has the install button that the users clicked. So, from a security point of view i don't necessarily see a problem here because the user still has to manually click and at least click through one security prompt anyways other software developers do this too webex another video chat conferencing application uses the same technique i think where zoom kind of got a bad rap is malware also uses this technique because malware generally says we want to make our install experience as easy for users as well so you know, whether Zoom should get in trouble for this or people get all spun up on that. I mean, I think it's an interesting observation. And yes, it kind of sidesteps the status quo of having two pop-ups. But, you know, the pre-install script is there for a reason and, you know, expects commands to be executed. And so the fact that Zoom put the majority of their or their entire install instructions in there, you know, I really don't think that's the end of the world. My personal opinion, because again, users are still having to click through at least several prompts to get to that and agreeing to several pop-ups. So it reduces the total number of pop-ups by one, but doesn't you know completely remove all of them. And again, it's not an exploit. It's not a vulnerability. It's just, in some sense, doing things a little more efficient that, yeah, maybe is not the exactly prescribed way, but better user experience. And I don't think it decreases or has any privacy or security issues.
0: And so that is the motivation for Zoom going around one of these dialog boxes that you would have to click through. It was simply a user experience sort of thing where they, you know, if you're a Zoom, you know that every additional dialog box that the user has to click through is an opportunity for drop-off. And so you just look for ways to alleviate that?
1: Yeah, 100%. That's exactly right. And as I mentioned, this is not an uncommon practice, both this practice and other similar practices. A while ago, we had Dropbox kind of sidestepping some Apple APIs, which would generate authentication prompts and directly inserting themselves into a database. People got all spun up on that. But the reality is Mac OS and Apple had already, or when Dropbox was run, Dropbox already had to ask the user for their you know, their credentials to install. And then going through the API, again, displayed a secondary prompt to ask the user for permission as well. So Dropbox basically said, hey, we're already authenticated. Like, why bother the user again? Let's just directly talk to the database versus go through the API and avoid a secondary pop-up. So there is some precedence for this. Again, it falls somewhere in the gray area. But the motivation for that, for these third-party application developers these companies is to increase the user experience largely because apple adds more and more of these user prompts and you know you see users complaining about that on the internet right when catalina came out someone posted a screenshot of when they logged in there was you know 10 new prompts on their desktop for them to approve certain applications to be able to access the download folder their documents the desktop so in some ways it's getting a little out of hand <laughs> apples approach, it's almost like we're having this vista light experience where you have to manually click approve on everything. So again, a lot of these companies are trying to figure out ways to minimize the impact of user experience with no malice. So again, I think this was done 100% just to improve the user experience versus some shady or malicious activity.
0: Great. So these questionable Zoom security decisions that we've discussed thus far these were discovered before you started investigating Zoom more seriously. When did you start examining Zoom yourself as a security researcher?
1: I believe it was last Monday, so earlier this week. Yeah, days are all starting to blend together. <laughs> 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 but after you know, seeing at least the tweet from my friend Felix about Zoom's somewhat questionable installer practice from a security point of view, It just piqued my interest. And also there had been some other issues where I had been pointing out that Zoom was sending information to Facebook via this third-party SDK. Zoom fixed that and said, hey, we weren't aware of what this SDK was using. So, yeah, there was some plausible deniability. But to me, it also showed that, okay, there's all these security and privacy issues. And a lot of them are very low-hanging, let's say, are fairly obvious, right? They're not super complex exploits and vulnerabilities. So it does seem that Zoom has just not been written with privacy and security in mind. We already talked about they really focused on usability, which made for a very popular product. But I thought, you know, maybe there's some security issues, especially in the Mac client, because a lot of times developers aren't as familiar with the the Mac uh, ecosystem and the closed APIs. So we see a lot of missteps when developers are quickly putting together a Mac client. I imagine, you know, they have a good Windows client, the web client's solid, and then Zoom says, hey, we need a native Mac client. Who knows how to write this? And it's like, someone's like, oh, I've done a little bit of Mac programming. Okay, cool. Jump on Stack Overflow, copy and paste some code. <laughs> like, you know, so I just had a feeling that maybe this product wasn't designed, the Mac component as optimally or securely as it could be. So, I started looking in, uh, started at the installer, and I immediately noticed that they, and Felix had pointed this out too, that perhaps there was an issue because when they went to perform the elevated or privileged actions, which is fairly common, right? An installer needs to often put files in directories that the user may not have access to, they would do this via a very old and deprecated API. That API is authenticate, execute with privileges. Now, the reason zoom and in the past a lot of developers use this api is it's incredibly simple basically what you do is you give it a path to a binary or a script or a command that you want to be executed as root and then behind the scenes apple takes care of all the authentication showing the access prompt getting the user credentials validating them and if they're validated and correct mac os will then execute as root whatever the api was invoked with so one line of code from the developer Things just work. The issue with this API is it doesn't validate what it's about to execute as root. So if there is a local attacker or a piece of unprivileged malware that's already on the system, and it can detect that, for example, Zoom is performing an install or an update, it can programmatically detect and wait for Zoom to execute this script, this command as root, and modify that, you know, inject some commands, and macOS will naively blindly execute that because, again, it doesn't validate anything that goes on. So what Zoom was doing is they would ask the installer to run a script. And the script was called run with root. And you can see it in Zoom's installation package. And all it was doing was moving the Zoom application into the applications directory because you know a standard user might not have access to arbitrarily put files in that. The issue was the installer would place that run with root script in a user-writable, world-accessible temp directory. We just mentioned the API doesn't validate what it's about to run as root, it just runs whatever the developer asks it to. So what I did in my proof of concept was, as Zoom was performing its install or an upgrade, I, with no special privileges, could add some commands to that run with root scripts. Because Again, it's just sitting in this world-writable temp directory. And then once the user had authenticated the system would run that script along with the malicious commands that I had injected into that. And those again would be executed as root. So now I was very easily able to get root privileges on a system. So that was kind of the first flaw I found. Again, uh, rather common mistake that we see a lot in a lot of third-party APIs. And the reason is it's a very easy API to use. Apple though, to their credit, has largely warned developers don't use this API. It'll throw a deprecation warning at compile time. If you go read the documentation, it says there's security issues with this. But the alternative, the more modern secure API is a bear to use. It like installs a background daemon. You can't pass command line arguments. You have to do it via XPC. The daemon can't remove itself. It's just it's very secure, but it is incredibly difficult to use. So a one-line API versus like re-architecting your whole application, your whole installer experience, You know, I can see why developers often still use the older version of the API.
0: So just to make sure I understand this vulnerability correctly, if I'm installing Zoom, Zoom is going to use this authorization execute with privileges API, yep. which puts a script into temp, and then that script in temp is executed as root, which will move the installed application into the applications directory to make it easier for the user to access. And then the vulnerability is the fact that some other program, even one without root access, could append to that file in temp and then that file in temp would then execute under root? Is that what it is?
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. So when Zoom invokes this API, they give it a path to this temporary, this script in the temp directory. If they would have executed you know, a binary that was owned with root permissions or something perhaps on a read-only DMG or in the package, you know, a local attacker may not have been able to modify that. So what I'm saying is the, the API, though it's inherently... Insecure can be invoked securely. The problem is Zoom was using it in a way where it would execute, as you noted, a script running out of the temp directory as root, and this script was accessible by anybody. So any other program, a local attacker, could, as we mentioned, inject malicious commands in that then exactly would be run as as root. So kind of a nice log- logic flaw, right? It's not you know it's not something that's going to crash. It's not a buffer overflow. It's going to work consistently and reliably.
0: I'm sure this is my naivete as anybody that knows anything about security, but if we're talking about some vulnerability that's going to be exposed to like some local attacker, couldn't a local attacker just execute that same blob of code? Couldn't a local attacker just execute a script that says authorization execute with privileges? Like why not? Yeah. And we actually see
1: malware do that. So there's various levels of, I would say, stealth and believability you know and on one end you have malware that you know gets on your system it just arbitrarily invokes that same api and there's a prompt on the desktop and some users are just like oh you know there's there's a new access prompt i should put in my credentials
0: oh okay so then it would say like you know awesome malware program has asked access to you know your system or whatever
1: essentially there are some ways where you can and this is again kind of the issue with apple's authentication mechanism you can control the icon and the, a lot of the verbiage in that pop-up. So you could, for example, run a P, once Bower gets on the system, it could customize that pop-up, say with an icon that belongs to Slack or Zoom or something that's installed on the user system and say, hey, there's an update that you need to execute. You know, a suspicious user would probably, you know, at least say, why is this just randomly popping up? So the next level of stealth and sophistication is, to basically utilize this kind of vulnerability, where it's a flaw in a legitimate installer that the user is going through and installing. So there's really nothing amiss. The downside is you have to wait, obviously, until one of these installers or update occurs, but it does decrease the likelihood that a user will notice that they've just given this malware now, root privileges. And then if you go one step further, right, you have local privilege escalation vulnerabilities in the OS itself that malware can stealthily and surreptitiously trigger with no authentication pop-ups or issues. So it's kind of a sliding scale of stealth and believability. And I think this kind of sits in the middle-ish. So yes, there's definitely other ways to perform a a similar attack. And we have seen malware, unsophisticated malware do exactly that in the past.
0: And so by the way, What was your process for figuring out this vulnerability? What files did you look at to understand this was going on?
1: Yeah, so I've actually talked about this vulnerability a few times, the use of this API. So what you can pretty much do is just run a process monitor that's going to show you what processes are being executed along with their command line arguments. So under the hood, this API performs kind of a lot of complex interactions. It talks to various daemons, sends XPC messages to do IPC interprocess communications. Ultimately what happens though, it spawns a set UID program called security underscore auth trampoline and it executes whatever was passed to that API. So what you can do to detect this kind of vulnerability is simply look for that security auth trampoline process being executed and then examine the first argument because that's gonna be the path to the binary or the command that will be run as root. You can then check the permissions of that file And if, for example, it's in a temp directory that unprivileged users can access, you've just found vulnerability. Now, if it's executing some Apple binary that lives on some read-only partition or is protected by system integrity protection, which is a mechanism in macOS that prevents code even running as root from modifying files, that means that instance of the invocation of the insecure API is not actually vulnerable because they are executing something that you as an unprivileged attacker cannot modify. But more often than not, it's something being run out of the downloads directory or attempt directory. So again, you can kind of surreptitiously hop in, inject some malicious commands, or even replace the whole damn thing. And again, it'll be run lovingly as root.
0: There's a term you mentioned there called uh, auth trampoline. I just like that term. I, can you explain what that term is in more detail? Sure. So
1: behind the scenes, when a developer or an application invokes the authenticate execute with privileges API, once it's done some checks and got the user's credentials, it executes an Apple binary that is named security underscore auth trampoline. And this is a program, a binary that has the set UID bit, which means it'll be executed with the permissions or privileges of whoever is invoking this. And in this case, it's invoked with root. So this means whatever it executes is also going to run with root privileges. So this is kind of the last piece of the puzzle. Again, this is Apple implementation of this API. And what it does is it takes the string, the first parameter that was passed to the API by the developer and executes it now with privileges. So the idea, I guess, is it just is a trampoline, is a proxy that is ultimately responsible for executing what the developer has requested with these elevated privileges. So again, we can simply sniff or monitor for that process being invoked, look at what it's about to execute. And then if we have the privileges as a non-privileged user to modify that, we've just found a local privilege escalation vulnerability.
0: And I think here we're seeing your your level of experience in doing this kind of vulnerability searching or reverse engineering because you, you're aware of these tools that you can use to get visibility into what your programs are doing as you're executing them. And also, you know, I guess you've just been trained from pattern matching, what kinds of things are going to be signs that a program has done something that, that indicates it's got a security vulnerability.
1: Yeah, definitely. I always joke about this a little bit. So I used to work at the the NSA, the National Security Agency. I did some malware analysis there, but then I was also on the offensive side of the house developing offensive cyber capability that the US government would then use in cyber operations. And what I joke about is that experience kind of corrupted my mind, I think in a positive way, but I'm always looking at things kind of from like, how do I break this point of view? So I've been doing this for, wow, now probably 10, 15 years. And I also write a lot of security tools as well. So as I go through these processes, I realize the potential missteps that developers could make coupled with my kind of gray hat hacker mindset that's continually in the back of my head whenever I you know, install Zoom for legitimate purposes. You know, I see that authentication prompt. I'm like, hmm, I wonder how they're doing that. The problem is on macOS, a lot of times there's not a lot of good utilities. So for example, the process monitor I described, there's not really good built-in capabilities for that. So I actually went ahead and wrote a process monitor. It's free, it's open source on my my website. And that's kind of an example of me also building tools to facilitate malware analysis, reverse engineering, and, and vulnerability discovery. But yeah, I definitely have a propensity for finding these bugs and definitely kind of a mindset whenever I see In this scenario, authentication pop-up on installer, you know, I spend two or three minutes digging around and saying, oh, you know, it's vulnerable. And once you do this long enough, you know, you start seeing these patterns, this vulnerability, you know, this insecure API, unfortunately, is is fairly common. So, you know, once you start kind of looking or understanding what to look for, it's fairly easy to find similar scenarios and reveal new security issues.
0: Okay. Well, so another vulnerability that we'll discuss that you found is zoom's code injection for mic and camera access. So if a user has given zoom access to the mic and camera, it also opens that user up to malicious code being injected into the process space where that code can piggyback off of zoom's mic and camera access. So does this mean that if I install zoom and I give Zoom access to my camera and mic, any other program can also turn on my camera and mic? Yes,
1: exactly. In a nutshell, you captured it perfectly. And so this to me, I think is a more problematic scenario, probably one that has more likely security and privacy impacts than the local privilege vulnerability we just discussed. So taking a step back on recent versions of Mac OS, if you're an arbitrary application, You know, even if you're Zoom, the first time you run and you try to access the mic or the webcam, macOS will intercept that request and block it, displaying a access prompt to the user saying, hey, Zoom would like to access the mic or the webcam. Now, in a situation like Zoom, the user is obviously gonna click allow because Zoom without mic and camera access is, well, essentially useless. And that's all well and good, right? Zoom should be afforded those security mechanisms or that access. And it's also good that Apple has added this second layer of security. This kind of connects back to what we talked about at the beginning where these are kind of these new pop-ups that Apple has added. It can be a little annoying, but in the past, we saw a lot of Mac malware that once it got access to a system, it would surreptitiously or very stealthily turn on the the mic, for example, to turn the, the system into a room capture audio device. You can imagine, you know, you've hacked into a foreign government's computer system, the laptop's in a conference room, turn on that mic, you now have incredible access. So this was something that advanced nation states were doing. We also saw malware that would turn on the camera. The LED light would come on, but more sophisticated malware would wait until the user was not sitting in front of the computer, then turn on the camera, perhaps to to spy on them. So there's some unfortunate cases of that actually happening as well. So Apple said, "Okay, we need to do something about this. We're going to protect the mic and the webcam. And any application that wants to access them, the user is going to have to explicitly agree. So this is all well and good. So Zoom now has access to the mic and the webcam. And if we look at how Zoom is compiled, how it's built, it's compiled with something called the hardened runtime. And the hardened runtime is something that Apple has designed that applications can opt into at compile time. And it basically tells the operating system to protect the application. And there's a variety of protections it affords, but in the context of this discussion, it protects the application from malicious code injection attacks. So this means when the application compiled with the hardened runtime is executing, if another if another program on the system, perhaps a piece of malware, tries to inject a malicious library or modify one of the libraries that the application has a dependency on, the system will detect this tampering and actually block or prevent that injection from happening. So a very great security mechanism that Apple has offered application developers and provides a very high level of self-defense, which is good because if there wasn't the case, we could very easily do things like inject malicious code into Zoom, piggyback off its mic and webcam access. The issue with Zoom was, though it was compiled with this hardened runtime, for some unknown reason, they added an exception that instructed the operating system to allow third party libraries to be loaded into Zoom's trusted process space. So, as soon as I saw that, I said, Well, Zoom has access to the mic and the webcam. Can I create a malicious library, replace one of Zoom's dependencies, one of its own libraries with my malicious library. And then whenever the user starts Zoom, my malicious library will get loaded into the address space. And then from the operating system's point of view, when my malicious library tries to access either the mic or the webcam, the operating system will see that it's just Zoom, the Zoom process. And since Zoom has been given access to the mic and webcam previously by the user, my malicious library will now be able to access that. So this is problematic because it means malicious code, any other program or malware that's on your system, can inject into Zoom to record Zoom meetings, Zoom discussions. And worse, the malware or that malicious program can actually execute Zoom at arbitrary times in the background in an invisible manner, turn on the mic or the webcam. And again, macOS will see that request, but will allow it because Zoom has been given access previously by the user. So kind of an interesting flaw there that I think definitely has some security and privacy implications.
0: And what is involved in injecting malicious code into a process space? What does that look like in practice?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And there's a myriad of techniques. The technique I chose is a technique that I kind of have, I would say, pioneered, at least on the macOS side. And the idea is you find a library that the application has a dependency on. So that means it's gonna try to load it every time it's run. And what you do is you take that legitimate library, in this case, it was an SSL library, and you rename it. Now, if you try to run the application, after you've renamed the library it has a dependency on, the application will crash because it can no longer find the library that it requires to execute. So what you then do is you create a malicious library And you put it in the original location with the original name. Now, when you run, because again, in this scenario, Zoom had turned off the library validation that the hardened runtime affords, Zoom will naively and blindly load your library instead of the original one. Now, there's one more piece to the puzzle. You've just replaced a legitimate library. That legitimate library had a dependency or the application had a dependency because it expected that library to do something. So for example, we replace an SSL library, when Zoom goes and tries to make some SSL connections, the application is gonna crash or quit because our malicious library obviously doesn't export or provide that functionality. So the key to the whole puzzle is this idea of dilib, dynamic library proxying. And what you can do is you can compile your malicious dynamic library with a forwarding directive that says, hey, anytime someone asks me for some exposed capability, an exported API, a symbol, anything a library would normally expose, I don't have that implementation, but I know who does. So what we can do now is we can create that forwarding directive and point it to the original SSL library that we've renamed, we've essentially replaced, so that when Zoom makes a call to us, which it believes is the legitimate SSL library, we simply proxy that request to the original library, and that is all seamlessly and handled by both the linker and the the logic at runtime. So that's really awesome because we don't have to actually implement any code, any functionality that we have replaced. We just create this forwarding directive. Both the libraries get loaded. And anytime Zoom makes a call into the cell library, that gets automatically forwarded and handled by the original dynamic library. So we're stoked, right? Our malicious code is running in Zoom's address space, we can access the mic and the webcam, but we have not broken any legitimate functionality. So very stealthy, very powerful technique to get code into remote processes in a way that's very difficult to detect and also doesn't break any legitimate functionality, which is very important because if we crash Zoom or cause hiccups, people would start digging and would uncover this, this attack.
0: What has been Zoom's response to this particular vulnerability?
1: So... We kind of picked on Zoom a little bit, right? We pointed out their privacy and security track record was less than stellar. They really prioritized usability over privacy and security. However, Zoom's response to this was was stellar. So first and foremost, they fixed these vulnerabilities within a day, which that's incredible, right? So I think that already speaks a lot to their newfound commitment to security and privacy. Beyond that, they spent some time really trying to learned from these lessons and created a very transparent and well thought through plan that moving forward, you know, how can they address these flaws and ensure that in the future, such flaws are hopefully not introduced into uh, production code that's being shipped to millions of users around the world. So the first thing they said is we're gonna do a feature freeze. Instead of focusing on new features, we're gonna now focus on security and privacy. And this is great because originally they put a lot of their resources and efforts, if not all of their resources and efforts into creating new features versus improving privacy and security. And we can't fault Zoom too much because this is largely driven by customer demands. For example, if Zoom had spent six months designing a new version of Zoom and only improved the privacy and security, the average user, the average business probably wouldn't care. Whereas Zoom comes out with a new version and says, hey, we now support virtualized backgrounds. You can change your backdrop to a beach in Hawaii like Consumers and businesses are like, "I love that. I'm stoked. You know, Give me emojis, give me backgrounds, right? So the market was dictating what Zoom prioritized. Unfortunately now there's kind of been this 180 like, I shouldn't say unfortunately, I should say fortunately, where now security and privacy is, is paramount, and we have seen companies you know, banning the use of Zoom because they are worried about some of these security issues that have come up, both mine and others. For example, Zoom was routing some calls through China, you know, accidentally, supposedly, but you know, that doesn't give a lot of companies kind of this warm, fuzzy feeling. So Zoom has basically said, okay, hey, we really realize we need to focus on security and privacy. So feature freeze, we're going to put all engineering resources onto security and privacy efforts, improving that. That's awesome. They are also improving their bug bounty program, so to attract more security researchers to audit their code and be financially compensated for any issues they find. They're also going to bring in external companies to do audits and pen tests of their software. And then I believe they also created an advisory board bringing in C-level execs from other companies to help them with design and security and privacy decisions. So, I mean... Their response is, I would argue, incredibly emotionally mature and really shows that moving forward, they understand the relevance and importance of security and privacy and are taking all the necessary steps to mitigate that. Now, there is a little bit of tech debt, right, that they're going to have to wade through. So I would be unsurprised if new security issues aren't found, but they now have a really good track record of fixing those quickly, being very transparent about them. And, and moving forward. So that's a good thing. And I think this is really a win-win scenario because yes, this will ultimately benefit users and customers around the world who are now going to be running an application that's far more secure and private, which will turn into you know increased sales for Zoom and or the maintaining of existing customers. So I love when a situation turns out to be a win-win where the users benefit and business and Zoom benefits as well, because I think then everyone's stoked.
0: Okay, great. Well, let's begin to wrap up. I'd just love to know a little bit about what your day-to-day work consists of. Is this what your life is, just looking at applications and looking for vulnerabilities like this? Often. you know, Usually the first thing I do is I
1: check the surf. I'm lucky to live out in in Maui. And it's actually funny because I could see the waves are breaking really now. So, as soon as we're done with this podcast, I'm going to grab my surfboard and Get some vitamin D and some exercise. Luckily, it's a very socially distancing activity. (laughs) So super stoked about that. But my day-to-day job is I work as a principal security researcher at Jamf. J-A-M-F. Jamf, we're building a Mac security product for the enterprise. So what we do is we analyze a lot of malware, exploits, vulnerabilities, and then we build detection mechanisms for this. So, one of the detection mechanisms we have is for monitoring for this, for example, this insecure API being called. And this is something that we already had and already worked on because of my past research. So, as I mentioned somewhat earlier, when you know I'm I get an invite for a Zoom meeting and I install Zoom on my system and I see that authentication prompt. Because of my past research and also the tool developments, the research I do at chance, you know, I'm kind of already looking for these issues. So I say, okay, I'm going to take a break from coding and dig into this application and see what it's doing. So it's nice that Jank has given me a lot of flexibility to kind of go off on these small tangents. You know, similarly, if a new piece of malware is detected, spend some time tearing it apart, figuring out, you know, is it going to bypass our existing detections? Is it using some new exploit? Is it leveraging some really creative way to access the mic and the webcam? So it's kind of this continual cycle between doing offensive cybersecurity research, looking at malware, looking for exploits and vulnerabilities, and then taking all of that knowledge and feeding it back into our security product. And for me, that's great because I really like finding bugs, analyzing new malware, right? that's really kind of allows me to scratch that offensive cybersecurity itch. But then being able to feed it back to a defensive product, I think, is a really powerful way that you know we can ensure, or at least strive to ensure that users around the world are hopefully, you know, more secure. Because at the end of the day, that's something I'm really passionate about. I mean, you know, when people are getting hacked and their system's infected, that can be problematic. I think not to go too much off on a tangent, but we talked a little bit about the malware that could access the webcam. There was a case I worked on that actually ended up collaborating with the FBI, where an individual had created this Mac malware called FruitFly, and his goal was to infect Mac users and turn on the webcam to spy on them. And he did this for over a decade, undetected. And he, good news is he eventually got caught. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the victims that he had been spying on were were children. So this is a scenario where, you know, there's real psychological damage and impact to the victims of this. And from a security point of view, this malware wasn't very sophisticated and should have been detected very easily. So, you know, if, if we can work and create security products that can hopefully protect users, then, then we're stoked. So that's kind of my, my nine to five job. Then my five to 11 job is creating free open source security tools for end users. So I run a website called Objective-C, it's Objective-S-E-E. And we talked a little bit about, like for example, the process monitor. So I say, hey, there's not a good process monitor for macOS, let's create one. Or, hey, I want an application that tells me anytime someone accesses the mic or the webcam. So even if someone has gained access to my system and is using Zoom to spy on me when I'm not around, when I come back to my computer, there should at least be a pop-up or an alert that, hey, just to let you know, Zoom or something else was using your mic or the webcam. So I created a free application that does that and it just gives you an alert anytime someone accesses the mic in the webcam. And again, if someone had been running this on their system and this fruit fly malware that was designed to spy on people, would have gotten infected on the system, this application would have alerted users to that. So that's kind of the goal, just designing free, largely open source tools for end users to prevent the attacks that I'm both coming up with and that I'm seeing in the wild. So that's something I'm really passionate about as well. You know, I like to think I'm hopefully making somewhat of a difference in the world. And you know, kind of a way of giving back and baking a lot of my talents and experiences into, you know free utilities and tools for Mac users.
0: Yeah, very interesting work, very useful, positive work, and makes me want to do more security shows because this is great series of stories, a great series of vulnerabilities. I think that is one thing that stands out about the security ecosystem is there's just they're compelling stories. So thanks for coming on the show, Patrick. It's been great talking.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I would be stoked anytime to come back talk nerdy about other security topics.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's do it again. We'll, We'll do it again sometime. That sounds great.
1: All right. Thanks, Jeff.